Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. There's a strange story behind that cuddly toy. It all began when I accepted a job from the mysterious Irish woman. <laughs> Not much to tell about that. I got busted in a stupid argument about the colour of a boathouse. Ambushed by a coffee cup was only the half of it. My former employers were keen to show their own displeasure at the dishonesty of my CV. The German they sent broke both my legs. That was how I ended up confined to quarters for two months. If it hadn't been for the balcony overlooking the courtyard, I think I would have gone crazy. The doctors left me with some potted plants to take care of. Occupational therapy, they called it. They also left me a couple of robot helpers to do odd jobs. Life in a double cast would be a lot more difficult without some robotic assistance. Once I'd watered the plants and read some of my book... I was pretty bored, so I would wheel myself out on the balcony and watch the comings and goings of the other people in my block. At first, it was all pretty benign. <laughs> How I laughed when someone tried to do some organic farming in their apartment. They didn't get tasty pork chops and bacon for their effort, just a pig-shaped hole all the way through their home. There was a family on first, mother, father and kid. Kid was kind of strange and pale, always talking to himself. One day he took his father into the gardens in the courtyard and they dug something up. Even from the top floor balcony I could sense that this would be trouble. Before long the father had gone on a road trip and the kid and his mother were looking miserable about the whole thing. As soon as the father had left, the atmosphere in the block became lighter and airier. Don't get me wrong, I'm not blaming him, but you see... He took the object with him. I think he was on a disposal run. Ah, I don't know what happened exactly, but it can't have been good. The father came back in a truck a few days later. He opened the back of the vehicle and over 30 people got out. They all shook the father's hand and disappeared into the city. Clearly, something had gone down, but I could only guess as to what. A few days later, another strange vehicle parked outside the block. Two guys wearing smart uniforms got out. I caught my breath, blinked and rubbed my eyes. I couldn't believe what I was seeing, but it was true. These guys were monochrome, and that could only mean one thing. They had come here from my old hometown. I was glad that all this went down only a few days before I got out of the plaster casts. As soon as I had use of my legs back, I hopped in a car and drove back to the place I never thought I'd see again. The old hometown had changed and not for the better. Oh sure, it was a little more colourful than I remembered, but the key theme colour was red. The streets were deserted, the place was a ghost town. I couldn't begin to guess what had happened. Signs in the store windows urged people to watch out for coloureds. It made no sense. 
Then a siren wailed and things began to get really dark. Monochrome miners emerged on the streets, running from something. I'd never seen a butcher with a coal scuttle on his head before. I never want to see one again. I ran through the streets and alleys of the town where I'd grown up, through madness, death and evil. I found myself at the edge of the county fairground. The heart of darkness was near now. I couldn't turn away. What a coincidence that the father of the family opposite me came from the same place as I did. If I'd discovered the source of ultimate evil in my garden, I'd probably have brought it here too. I remembered my perfect childhood here. I would have believed that no evil could taint the sanctity of my birthplace. Our nostalgic daydream had turned to an industrial nightmare. All I had to show for it was a blood-stained pink bunny rabbit. Uh, well, you can't go to the fair without playing hoopla, can you? Uh, yes, uh, very good, Leo, although I think you're abusing the any other business category of our meeting. Uh, but anyway, moving on to item two on our agenda, uh, we're discussing more films based on alphabet letters today. Uh, anyone want to start? Well, I think Justin is going to start, but before we do, we should probably let the folks know home. Today, of course, we are tromping through PQRNS, so that means we're doing four movies each. No, it doesn't, because these shows are three movies apiece, so something's going to have to go. But we didn't want to just leave Q out in the cold to suffer and die alone. Oh, no. And we also had wanted to give an opportunity for other movies that start with other letters of the alphabet to get a second crack. So what we've done is we've designated Q a wild card zone. So that means that you could do PRNS, of course, that is a, a perfectly valid option. But you could also do QRNS, where Q stands for Quotably Magnificent Movie in His Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, if that's what you wanted to do. Or you could actually have a movie starting with the letter Q, if that's what you want, but you only get three movies. I think that's fairly clear. Is anybody still behind on that? No? Uh, Good. Right, excellent. Justin, P. My first choice is uh, quite a recent film, actually, and that is Paranorman, oh. animated film. Now, I am a huge fan of kind of stop motion animation and have loved it for, well, for years, really. I mean, probably probably since seeing Jason and the Argonauts and those kind of things fueled my love for it and then obviously went on to other things and more recently, obviously, Aardman and everything else. But, of course, every animation style and approach has its own kind of limitations. Stop frame animation, up to recently, is not able to have maybe quite so expressive characters as traditional 2D animation, which also a lover of. Now, technology has enabled some fantastic things, and one of those is 3D printing, of which Paranorman demonstrates. Now, it wasn't the first, I believe, uh, Coraline uh, was the first to kind of use this technique, but essentially what it enables you to do is to uh, map out the kind of characters and animate them, and you would do 2D, but then print off all of those expressions and flexibility thousands upon thousands upon thousands of times incredibly quickly so that what you get is characters that look and act as if they are animated 2D, but they are filmed like stop-frame animation with beautiful light and everything. So you have Paranormal, which is just dazzling. I mean, th when I saw this... I was just taken aback. For me, this is exactly like the pinnacle of what stop from animation can do. Because, one, it's a great story. It's about this kind of boy who can talk to and see ghosts. 
I mean, there's there's a lot of things about not judging a book by its cover in this, running all the way through the characters. But essentially, there's this ancient witch that this ritual has to be performed, otherwise she kind of comes back to life. And you know, there's there's zombies, there's ghosts. It's Tim Burton-esque, I think, would be fair to say. It's touching on a lot of things he loves, but it's a much more technicolour affair, as you'd imagine, um, because it hasn't had a hand in it. Great characters. I mean, just beautiful, like, jaw-dropping animation. And, you know, really good. I mean, I'm not going to give away one of the things, but there's a, fa- I mean, there's a fantastic thing, thing right at the end about one of the characters is, is, is just unexpected and kind of wonderful that kind of sums up the whole point of, of the, of the entire film. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of sumptuous. I say great, great kind of voice talents, great acting, uh, great, great animation and just a fantastic kind of, Lovely horror story with, I mean, who doesn't want kind of zombies running around and ghosts? I mean, it's just beautiful and, and, and groundbreaking and, and will definitely set the so tone from now on. You definitely, if they're off and there will be further stop motion anima, uh, uh, films coming out, they have to be affected by this because it is, you know, wow, just, just amazing, uh, technically. It's interesting that you should imagine. Have you seen Paranorman, Ian? I haven't. The, the curious thing about Paranorman is if you just see like a still from the film, it looks like it's CGI graphics in a funny sort of way. Yeah. Obviously, stop motion is recognisable from CGI when you see it in motion. The fact that it is stop motion lends it so much charm that it wouldn't have it was just another CGI animated feature. It's, it's a point of interest that makes you just want to watch it. The sheer joy of animation in itself. Because these days, through technology, animation is so much easier. It's almost, we're almost a bit more passe about it than we were in the past, where it was a prestige project. Absolutely. But what it will do as well is kind of make it timeless. Mm. Because stop front animation is timeless. Like CGI, dates like 10 years later you'll look at stuff and go oh it's not looking as good because there's something else that's better i think that there is going to come a point it's a bit like the old uh, microsoft uh, <laughs> we've taken the version into a technology conversation which i suppose is appropriate given that there's a, a technical feature to this thing but microsoft ha- is still having a job getting some people to give away windows xp and upgrade to the latest version um because what happened was they hit the good enough point uh, which they didn't even know existed before that point due to the fact that nothing they'd made before Windows XP was good enough. I mean, that's actually true because as soon as the new one came out, people go, oh, maybe it'll stop doing this and they done it. And the XP came along and after the service packs had come out, it was like, no, this is all right. We'll use this then. Brilliant. Cheers. Oh, fantastic. Cheers. So it has been ever thus for some people because they're like, well, I've got my operating system. I don't see that I should go any further. And Microsoft's like, no, you can't because of viruses and stuff. Please change it. And the reason is because XP got to a point where most users were like, I can use this, I'm happy. And I think that's the thing. We we have lived at a time when the CGI animation thing has gone from, well, this is the best we can do today, and it is cutting edge. But one day there's going to be a point where it's like, well, you really can't do any more. I mean, you could. There are sort of nerdy, wonky animation expert things you could do to improve, in quoted, in, in quote. But really, most animation is good enough. I don't know whether we're at that point yet or whether it's just a case of we are at that point if you're a normal. I feel because definitely there was a time where you would see something and any kind of CGI really. And, you know, a couple of years later, you'd look at it and go, oh, that's looking a bit ropey. Well, that distance is widening. Right. Good. I mean, good examples of any any kind of animation like that, like seven or eight years old and it's still looking fine. So it's getting 
you mm. know, it's getting to the point where, yes, it will be difficult. They, like you say, they will have achieved everything. It's not quite though, but it is, is certainly almost there. Yeah, I mean, you know, God, how slow were they? Uh, when did uh, Toy Story come out? What, late 90s, early yeah. 2000s? Oh, it's taking them nearly two decades to get their slow pokes. Yeah, but that's, um, that's, that's but, something that's purely animated. I mean, when you look at things like the uh, the Mr. Smith fight from the Matrix trilogy, it's, and they suddenly you get the CGI Keanu Reeves, you can really see the edit now where it was switches from live action to animation, I would say. I, I kind of could at the time, really. But anyway, yeah, back to Paranorman. I really like this movie and I didn't even realise it was stop motion animation when I saw it. I thought it was CG, but there we go. Because there have been some hybrid projects, of course, like uh, Flushed Away and things like that, where they kind of go halfway through and try and do bits and bobs either way. But I think one of the uh, crazy things about it is that not only is the technique used to make it something a bit different, but the film itself is very much something a bit different. I seem to remember it came out around about the same time as Frankenweedy, and as you say, it was Burton-esque. It took Tim Burton in that instance to school because Frankenweenie is fine, I suppose. I watched it once. I was like, well, that was okay. But Paranorman, you want to go back and watch again and again. It, it treads into that whole idea of making things which are traditionally associated with horror movies uh, into something that's kind of like uh, Chotsky-esque you know, something you have on your desk or whatever. Uh, after uh, Beetlejuice and around about that time, of course, we've had this explosion in actual little plastic trolls and zombies and things that people put on their desk. And I think that's in due in no small part to Tim Burton. Uh, unlike George Lucas, Tim Burton didn't have the sense to do any kind of merchandising deal for that. So uh, he's slightly less staggeringly wealthy than perhaps he should be if he'd have boxed clever. That probably tells you Tim Burton and George Lucas not the best of friends. But there we go. Yeah, I mean, I, what I liked about the movie particularly is that it did keep going in odd directions that you weren't expecting it to go in. And that kind of keeps you like a ball in the air as an audience member, always readjusting your attitude and priority as to what is, is going to happen next in the movie. And what that means is that although at several points you could kind of go, oh, I can see where this movie is going, you would always be wrong. And that's great because it is definitely one well, it's not that it's complex to understand. It's that it doesn't rest on its laurels. It's always trying to push you forward to something new. And it doesn't try and say, oh, well, we've got this idea for this perfectly good movie about this blah, blah, blah. Sort of it's kind of kids sixth sense type of thing with a little boy who could see ghosts. And they go, oh, but we're not going to do something with this. And you're not going to see it coming. So, you know, what I mean, every time you think you think, oh, this is this movie, then you're wrong. And then right up until the end, and then you go, ah, I enjoyed that, it was good. Uh, Ian, you've got a cue, I understand. I do have a cue, does no one else have well, a cue? Well, no, don't, don't, I have a pee. Uh, I'm going to have a pee now, I'm back from having a pee. It was a very quick pee. No, my pee, it's weird because, I mean, there are lots of films that start with pee, and for some reason this just popped into my head. And I'm very glad that it did, because it's an unusual movie that I think may have been issued at the wrong time. I'm taking you back to the late 90s at this time and to a film starring two people who were not very well known at the the moment, one of whom was briefly spent time swinging around New York on the end of a web before sinking back into obscurity and another of whom is now actually quite famous, uh, that being Reese Witherspoon. And the film I'm referring to is Pleasantville. Ah. Uh, 
this is a very strange movie. I think, I mean, weirdly, like Paranorman, it doesn't sit where you think it's going to sit. For those unfamiliar with the premise, we live in the late 1990s and there's this thing at the beginning that shows you how the world is going to hell in a handbasket, how young people have no future, how global warming is heating up the planet and how everything is is pretty, uh, you know, pre-apocalyptic. And there's a kid who's really into this show uh, from the 50s called Pleasantville in which uh, William H. Macy plays a guy who comes home every day, hangs up his coat and hat, turns into the house and goes... Hi, honey, I'm home. And his wife has made him a delicious dinner and they have two kids and the boy wins at the science fair and the girl's very studious. He's going to college and basically nothing bad ever happens in Pleasantville. The fire department rescue cats from trees. Everyone has white picket fences. The basketball team never loses a match. And it's just fantastic all the time or indeed pleasant as in Pleasantville. We contrast this with the year, the, the year of the 1990s where uh, the two fraternal twins, Reese Witherspoon and Toby Maguire, are living in the traditional broken home. The mother's going off with her toy boy, leaving them to be latchkey kids. Uh, she's a bit promiscuous. He's a bit of a dork. And as the mother goes off to a, a weekend uh, away with her, her toy boy, the uh, siblings fall to blows over the television remote uh, because he wants to watch the Pleasantville Marathon and enter a competition to win a thousand dollars for his encyclopedic knowledge of such an obscure subject and she wants the television for some reason that is never made plain because apparently her boyfriend is coming round. It doesn't the point is they argue over the remote, it breaks. At which point a mysterious TV repairman comes to the door and offers to fix them good. At which point they get zapped into the world of Pleasantville. Uh, and you think, ah, I know where this is going. And indeed, it does sort of start off on the foot of of being a sort of satire about the unrealism of, of television universes like Pleasantville. But then on the other side of that coin, also about things that modern people could do to make things a bit more pleasant. But then it starts pretty realistically with the teenage girl from the 90s taking, you know, the most handsomest boy from the basketball team out to Lover's Lane and introducing him to the to, to some birds and bees because there's a nice garden there and nature is 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 all in bloom around lovers lane at which point this black and white world in which they found themselves where geography consists of the geography of pleasantville because there's nothing outside of pleasantville it, it starts to get little swatches of color and this is one of the things that kind of effect which was first seen in the uh, film adaptation of the outsiders quickly became stale in the 80s because people overused it i mean they absolutely came dead most of the pictures black and white but here's a swatch of color but in this it has an actual point in that when uh, it's not all about kissing and holding hands and it goes a little bit further and emotions become a little bit deeper then color starts to come into a black and white world but then there's an ugly side to that because uh, we see like the ugliness of the black and white world in the fact that uh, the brother has a job at the burger store and his 
boss played by Jeff Daniels is often confused and somewhat lost because unless things run exactly to the Pleasantville timetable he doesn't know what to do and so Bud played by Tony McGuire tells him well if I don't turn up why don't you just do the jobs yourself until I arrive or uh, you know maybe I'll make the cheeseburgers instead of you because you know you, we don't need to just do the things that we always do we could do something different and this starts this ball rolling in the, the burger manager guy's head to the point where he becomes an artist gets very interested in art and starts to paint uh, well actually the big mistake is probably painting bud's television mother in the nude that kind of raises a few eyebrows and the color starts to flood in and then you know there's there's violence and there's altercation between people who want things to stay pleasant and people who like the color and rich variety of life and so on and so forth and you think it's going to be fairly straightforward but it never never is actually straightforward and this is where the big limitation comes in it's a two-hour movie so not short but in two hours such an incredibly fascinating concept and conversation simply cannot be had properly and so you get to this point where surely this would be better as a television series now in the late 90s saying oh well i've got this script for a film but really it should be like an hbo television series that was madness whereas today i think it's a, a it would be a, a, you know embraced as a concept and an idea i think this is possibly why the film hasn't become more cherished because as fascinating as it is it remains problematic because as I said at one point, I turned to Sue as we were watching and go, so what we've learnt is that if you have sex, then trees catch on fire, but that's okay because now the books have words in them. What? <laughs> Uh, so yes, the, pro the the film in its time scale gets very muddled up. You have to read in a lot, but nevertheless, it is one of the most unusual movies that exists, and I'm very glad that I I rewatched it and brought it to you here today. And in fact, it, it may become one of my favourites from here uh, on. So yeah, yeah, Pleasantville. Well, I'm I'm pleased you mentioned it as well, yeah, uh, because um, this is as con as high concepts go. This is pretty. This is pretty crazy, but I love it. I, I love this. And I, I agree with what you were saying about, yes, it, it, it does like just when it's getting interesting, you want it to keep going. Um, and it can't do that. One of the, I mean, the best things I love about it is the fact that when people become like aware of whatever the passions are awakened in them and they become color, then all the townspeople that are still black and white, you know, refer to them as coloreds, which is just <laughs> yes. a fantastic kind of comment on fifties, you know, American racism. That it's like, God, why didn't anyone think of this? this? Is such a that's perfect, you know. I think in the late nineties, it was it came across, and people did criticize. I remember people criticizing at the time. It was a little trite. I think culture has moved on to a sufficient yeah. degree that now we can take it as a multi-level joke. Because I think yeah. in the nineties, people saw it very much as, well, you can't equate it to racism. It's like, well, no, they're not equating it to racism. It's a meta joke. It's not, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the black and white kind of member society are representing that kind of, you know, we'll keep our society. It's, it touches on racism because it's like, well, we don't want people coming in and changing that and mixing that up. So we'll stick with what we know. And of course, they're all predominantly kind of white anyway. So it, it's drawing upon those things. But I think it's a fascinating film. Just the visual method they used. You're absolutely right. You can imagine this as a miniseries where, you know, You'd introduce a cast of characters and then gradually they would become, you know, colour. 
coloured as they would each find their own passion. But then it's not black and white uh, in that, you know, it's like, well, having that is not necessarily fantastic. And it's not like, well, it's much better to be black and white because that brings like the film does demonstrate that having all these things does come with a negative side. Like, you know, things aren't as structured and as formal well, and as well, pleasant. They are more chaotic and more open to kind of the yeah, darker side of emotions. One of the big things, which is not troubling, but it, it reveal about the background thought process to this is that obviously, as we said, Reese Witherspoon is your typical late nineties, 18 year old promiscuous teen. And she goes into the world of Pleasantville and certain uh, people she, it's not that she has sex with lots of people it's just that she introduces the idea that they could have sex to all and some of them some of the other teens turn color and then she turns to Toby Maguire while she's still black and white and he's still black and white says I've had more sex than all of these people why am I still black and white and Toby Maguire just has to shrug because that's what the script demands but what it turns out is what makes her gain her color is that she realises very quickly once she's introduced an entire town to the concept of being sexually liberated that she's bored with all that and she yeah. starts like putting on her reading glasses and staying in and studying and then she turns colour. It turns out in her case that the what was underneath all of the sort of promiscuousness was the fact that she wasn't feeling she could get anywhere. And at the end, her character arc kind of goes from I'm not really doing anything but bonking lots of people to, well, the reason I was doing it was because in the 90s I couldn't go to college. And she ends up staying in Pleasantville in some really weird metaphysical shenanigans because in the 50s she can go to college uh, so now she's got a purpose to her life and that is what has made her colour. Tommy Maguire on the other hand gets a nice soppy girlfriend and goes he stays black and white he, he helps out his artist friend still black and white and at one point his television mother who has now become colour gets victimised by some black and white youths who are being threatening towards her and he goes up and gives one of them a jolly good biff on the nose and the blood from the guy is red and then it comes back to Toby Maguire and he's gone to colour. So it turns out that what he wanted to do was punch people in the face. And you're like, that's what would turn him colour. And it would be, wait, what? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it shows you that the dichotomy between the pleasant black and white world and the disordered, chaotic, passionate coloured world. The colour isn't always, quote unquote, right. It's just deeper. And yeah. that is uh, far too complicated to talk about in two hours. I mean, I think it's sort of the hazard of making a thing about a fictional show and they kind of got about, the writer obviously got a bit geeky about it and created an entire cast of characters who would be in this fictional show. And when you create like this universe with this fictional show and all these characters and where they stood in Pleasantville society, you've accidentally created enough material for a television show, particularly when you throw in this chaotic element of awakening the colour in the in the thing. Yep. So yes, that's that's where it comes down. I think it shows there was an interesting period of kind of yeah, of sexual liberation during the nineties, because here we have a young woman who's allowed to be promiscuous. And I don't think we could get that these days somehow strangely. The way would I be wrong in saying that? I don't know. It doesn't it uh, well, it's, it's, she's a very post-feminist character in that she starts off being promiscuous and then discovers what she really wants to do is go to college. So yes, but, uh, it's but got she, that message. There's no, nothing laid in the plot like a big bear trap for her to walk into because of her ways. And I think it even coaches it in kind of that Christian symbolism of plucking the apple, you know. So there is all that kind of woman as temperance thing. Going. Oh, the, the plucking the apple thing is the other way around. That's buds. Basically, there's yeah. a whole thing which they don't really explore where 
Bud gets another guy's girlfriend because he does some stuff to help out Jeff Daniels and she admires that. But in the run of the series, he knows as a Pleasantville geek, she's supposed to be with someone else. But then it, it's all changed anyway. Yes. So he runs with it and she gives him the apple. Yes, yes. But, but what I'm kind of saying is that, you know, she, she's allowed to be a sexual initiator whilst only being a college age student. It's completely normal. I totally agree with you. But it's you're not normally allowed to portray this sort of thing in, in the family media. It's like, surely we should be disapproving of her being like this. It is also interesting how, it, it, it is, as you say, it isn't just black and white. It isn't just stuffy black and white people need to learn to how, to, how to have some passion in their world. I'll be honest with you, I haven't seen the film, but I know someone who has. And when she talked to me about the film, she was talking to me about, oh, you know, it's a, in a funny sort of way. It reminds me of uh, the Garden of Eden and the knowledge of good and evil. And, you know, it's, yes. it's just, it's the mm. awakening and suddenly we gain that potential for great evil and a potential for great good as well. It's the balance of the two things and having the free will to break out of the robotical cycle of garden tending that we presumably we existed in before our liberation and uh, damnation. It's interesting for me because it, it doesn't place down a simple good versus evil, right versus wrong, tradition no. versus modernization. Uh, I think think, it does occur to me in this conversation that it is the only film I know of which is very directly the opposite polarities are a sort of order and chaos that Pleasantville is to a certain extent too ordered but then we are all too aware in the late 90s that chaos can be too chaotic and it is yes it is about it's a film about trying to find a balance not not about trying to go one end of the pool or the other and i think all that does say is that basically as it's one of the very very few cultural artifacts that manages to i mean to be fair i think that the wachowskis uh, would probably be spitting chips about this if they'd actually thought about it because this is kind of something they were trying to say in the last two matrix movies with all of their martial arts and the introduction of uh, various philosophical gewgaws but pleasantville actually manages to put this case to you that there you know good and evil is far too black black and white a way to look at the world and that there is more there are more shades of color good grief this movie keeps delivering doesn't it uh, but yeah i mean it manages to put that out. and i think another reason why people don't find it a very comfortable oh, this is one of my favourite movies and they buy it and they embrace it and they take it away is because it's one of the very few movies that leaves you walking away with more questions than you walked into it with. Well, indeed. Um, The other thing I was going to say is, in many ways, you know, looking from a kind of moral perspective, would be better just to leave the Pleasantville people in their Pleasantville ecosystem? They're all happy there. Well, that is exactly one of the points that is made. And the quote-unquote evil mayor, played by J.T. Walsh, does sometimes have a point. He also has the best line in the world, in the film, which is when the rain comes to Pleasantville, where it has never rained before, and uh, the TV dad's wife has left him, and he staggers out to find his comfort and safety in the arms of his brothers inside the bowling alley. J.T. Walsh, like, ruminates about how terrible it is that all colored people are in, and blah, 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 and how it's spreading everywhere, and it surmises that they are all safe in here, and that no Nobody's going to be fine. And then finishes off, thank God we're in a bowling alley. And it's just like... <laughs> it's like it says so much about the writer's attitude towards bowling alleys. <laughs> um, but there we go. So, yeah, uh, that was Pleasantville. Ian, you had a cue. Tell us about your cue, Ian. 
Well, it's the pits. Hammer Horrors, Quatermass and the Pit, to be exact, 1967. Uh, and my goodness, it has everything. Quatermass, everybody, come on! Aliens, <laughs> ghosts, mind control, genetic engineering, crashed spaceships, the end of civilization, riots, the devil himself, and the masterstroke setting it in the London underground. And when it comes to Quatermass, really, for the 80s kids, the films were all we had. Uh, most of the early series of the, of the BBC's serial Quatermass series were live recordings, this means they filmed them and it turned up in someone's television sets and nowhere in between was there any videotapes for anybody to wipe later on. There's only a few artifacts of those early series remaining, I believe they've done a restoration on the serial of Quatermass and the Pit now which I'd be interested to track down since I've discovered that. Okay. But uh, Quatermass of course is a, is a bit of a British legend. The serials used to come complete with a warning at the front of them saying don't watch these if you're of a nervous disposition. The episodes were great sort of episodic seal drama for peeling back the mystery layer by layer as the horror horror's grip grew stronger. And, and this is the kind of, you know, this film exemplifies the kind of serial that I love. And I think the Torchwood, Children of Earth, is the only modern day iteration I can really think of. Yes, so Quatermass and the Pit. Uh, yes, as I talk about the, uh, the layers of the onion. Well, first some workmen who are building a new branch line under the Devil's Hob Lane in, in Knightsbridge find a mysterious, strange skull. Well, you know, because they're digging a tunnel. And the area has a history for ghosts and apparitions. And then a paleontologist deduces the skull is of a large-headed dwarf man. Further excavations. Fine works looks like a large missile object. The army are called in because it could be an exploded bomb, along with Professor Quatermass or the British Rocket Group. Uh, More fossils are found with occult pentagrams, which can be dated up to five million years old. The missile resists all attempts to drill into it. Ghosts are reported by hysterical soldiers. They breach the missile and find the remains of three-legged locust aliens inside. They realize these aliens have visited primitive man and engineered their own psyche uh, attributes within man, along with their wild lust for war, for they are the Martians. The genetic trigger dormant in most men comes forth. Riots, fire, giant spectre of the Martian devil in the sky. We are the Martians now, and if you cannot control the evil within us, there will be a second dead planet in the solar system. Warms Quatermass at the end. My goodness, there's a film. <laughs> yes. Mark Gatiss of League of Gentlemen, Doctor Who and Sherlock fame says of Quatermass in the Pit, what sci-fi piece the past 50 years doesn't own Keel, the author uh, of Quatermass, a huge debt? The ancient invasion of Quatermass in the pit casts a huge shadow. Its brilliant blending of superstition, witchcraft, ghosts into a story of a five million old Martian invasion is copper-bottomed genius. Interesting enough, though, the author of Quatermass hated Doctor Who because he was a man who didn't really believe that the world would be better if you made friends with green people, as, as Doctor Who generally does. He was from a generation who had seen two world wars and the collapse of the empire. Doctor Who was an outsider who, with, with a disrespect for authority, Quatermass is authority and rightness, even if he is clashing with dim-witted other members of the establishment. I think, in some ways, it's a bit like a Lovecraft kills horror. It's built on a vast, strange editor's trying to in- invade 
our world, only for Kiel, our world is England, and white middle-class people are normal, and everything else is to be feared. I, I cite as an example of this a later Quatermass serial from ITV, it's not a BBC one, this is one of the 70s from later, where hippies and youths who are disengaged from society are a result of malignant alien influences. Goodness, really? Well, Lovecraft was a bit of a racist too, so by golly, I do believe through their paranoia, they've touched on a really interesting sci-fi horror trope that feeling of we're in this enclosed bubble of normality and outside is vastness and terribleness and they want to break in and destroy everything that we had i think quatermass still stands today as one of the most iconic influential horror brands and so yes quatermass in the pit is my thing uh gentlemen have you seen quatermass in the pit i saw it when i was like 13 as part of a run a bbc2 i keep coming back to these when they did runs of actual film festivals and things on bbc2 they did uh hammer had an anniversary and obviously it was a hammer movie and and therefore it, and i remember being into that and being like well you know most of them are like dracula frankenstein wolfman things like that and then here's this weird science fiction film in the middle of it all and i remember very clearly the um the the, the crane and the shadow of the devil over London and stuff a very striking image i'm not sure that i entirely understood it at the time and maybe it's worth uh, re-examining i have seen the recreation uh, by mark gattis i believe uh he was retained to i think that he had something to do with it yes of one of the quatermass serials which was uh perfectly fine as it should be uh it makes me wonder about you know when you lose things and but you know that they have been lost you have to as a, a skeptic you have to be like are they really as good as people remember and the answer is probably not but as they've been lost incontrovertibly lost undoubtedly lost completely lost can't get them back all gone they do get to exist in this uh nostalgia bubble of oh, i remember that thing it was really good and you don't know you don't you can't just go and get the dvd off your shelf and put it back in and go oh actually this isn't as good as i thought it was so yes uh, but there's uh, certainly uh quatermass is fascinating and it is a name to come conjure with and, and probably, uh, you know, at some point the cultural looters and pillagers of the modern age will, will come back to it. That's that's uh, almost a certainty, I would say. I think if Quatermass does come back, you just can't do kind of more of the same. I think Quatermass of its day was a kind of groundbreaking supernatural slash science fiction a horror serial and each series with its own distinct story and each each one would yeah. have very high stakes that built from the beginning and there'd be so much mystery it's one of those things like the box set syndrome oh just one more episode you really are on the edge of your seat and you know, because these things had had so much kind of impact as, as being horror television i think if quimas came back these days it would i don't say it'd be grisly but it would have to be a real kind of mind f experience uh, of, of, of a drink quite jarring and leaving you a little, feeling a little disturbed and unquiet, unquietened after it at the end. It's harder, um, isn't it? Because at that time, you know, the knowledge of the unknown was a big fear. And now people, I know there are still mysteries to unravel, but now as people are a lot more knowledgeable about things and science. And it isn't so, you know, scientists aren't portrayed as kind of strange people who shouldn't dabble in things you know it's become much more conventional we understand the the benefits of science 
And so, yeah, you'd have to really push it out. I mean, I, I, but I, I don't think I've seen the, the one, this film. I've definitely seen, um, the others because they, I, I got confused when before I knew about it because Quatermass is such an evocative name. I just thought it was the name of this creature or something, you know, it just doesn't sound like someone's surname. Yeah, I, I would agree uh, with that. Um, so, Quatermass. Quatermass in the pit. And the pit just thinking, I just imagine this like blob-like thing all crawling out of it. That was what I thought. And then, you know, and obviously it wasn't. And so the films are quite different, aren't they? Because they're, they're each tackling a different branch of, of the character dealing with something. So they don't, they don't follow on at all, do they? Each of the films. No, no, each, each one is, each serial film is its okay. own distinct thing. Yeah. It's just with the... That's right. Uh, so really, I hadn't really got a grasp of Quatermass at all. It's clearly something I need to, need to kind of catch up with. Because I say, certainly the, I've only seen like a couple of the films. And they don't feel anywhere near as weird and supernatural as 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 this one. So it's yeah. clearly something I need to catch up on because I quite like the sound of it. So I think it's fantastic. Actually. I think <laughs> I think I think the pit is certainly the pinnacle of them. Uh, having know, knowing yeah. a bit about the other, the, I mean, the classic BBC trilogy is what's held up as proper Quater Mass, and then there's derivations yeah. which may or may not have the original author involved afterwards. And it never seems to be the same actor twice uh, playing right. Quater Mass himself. Yeah, it's that creeping sense of horror. And, and also, I think with the, the pit, the one, the Massastrose, again, Doctor Who borrows this frequently, is making the familiar and then invading that on your television just to make it a yes. lot more grounded. It wasn't just any old pit they were digging. It's, it's London and it's, you know, yeah. and the Knightsbridge. And, you know, when that devil appears in the sky at the end, it's over London itself. And that is London itself rioting and it's coming at you through, through your television. And it was, it was groundbreaking for its day because no one had ever really seen drama doing that. It's always, you know, costume people, you know, having discussions or, or, you know, it was, it was domestic, uh, you know, realism. All of a sudden we having what riots in the street and there were riots going on at the time in London as well, I think. Uh, it, it was criticized for actually working that into the script, I think, as right. well. Uh, to sort of say, yes, these riots, riots that are actually happening in your newspaper are connected to this capsule that has come from Mars where extinct beings who worship the devil and the god of war <laughs> <laughs> once came from and have implanted their genes into us. And now we are the Martians. Oh, yeah, all I say is I'm pleased you chose this because I did look at that when I was looking at Q, Q films. And I'm like, oh, yes. I mean, I just don't know enough about to talk about anything, but I was kind of hoping someone would do. So, yeah, well done. I also talked about this idea of the nostalgia bubble and not being able to go back and check whether your rosy recollection of this uh, cultural nugget was actually anything like reality. Well, I think, well, we, we can because they actually did, um, I mean, that thing with David Tennant and Mark Gatiss was a live reenactment on BBC Three, I believe. You can see them, some of the dialogue is a bit flat. The characters are a bit flat as well. So you can see how the sort of intelligence of television has evolved over the years. Uh, but what I was actually going to say was that uh, this is something that could not be applied to my R. Uh, wow. I, I, I'm going to maybe we we'll get through this uh, pretty quickly. I'm going to start with this because it just links in uh, magnificently. I picked up to watch again. And I meant to do it in the year of its release, and I had it ready to go, and then I didn't have time to watch it, so we didn't end up talking about it. And I'm going to talk about Robert De Niro and Jean Reno in Ronan. Okay. I remember at the time it was kind of a weird it's a it's a weird film, okay? Not because it's weird 
because uh, it's really not that weird. It's an action thriller as of, you know, much 70s pedigree. But what makes it weird is that it was made in the mid to late 90s. It is kind of mannered for this. It's also weird because it has Sean Bean in it, and yet his character, uh, as far as we know, survives the experience of being in the movie, which is a, a, a very strange thing in and of itself. What the experience I had, I think this is probably where I want to centre on this, because it's impossible to describe the movie, I think, without coming into the sort of the modern era's take on it. It's a sort of a 70s style spy thriller with car chases di- directed by one of the great car chase directors John Frankenheimer and I think this was his this was his way of saying in the 90s when action was going the way of Big Bay it was like no no there's a different way to do action and nobody listened to him but they bloody well listened to Doug Lyman when he made the Bourne Identity a few years later and probably that was all for the best whereas the Bourne Identity updated that 70s action thriller feeling this stuck with it down to the choices of fonts for titles and uh, soundtracking i mean is a museum piece even in the 90s of 70s action which i remember people saying and one of the things that therefore becomes most striking in this day and age where a, a level of sophistication is required even for dumb action spectacle is the fact that it actually it struck me last night it actually makes no damn sense whatsoever at all even on a pretty basic level at the beginning robert de niro and a group of shady ex-intelligence agency types in a way where it's like the writer has read uh, sort of Jean le Carré but then also enjoys watching James Bond movies and the French connection is trying to meld those two actually pretty fundamentally incompatible types of thriller together and they all get together in a warehouse and they've got to get a case which has a MacGuffin in it so then there's a Hitchcock kind of reference in there and then some stuff happens and then Basically, about halfway through the movie's runtime, they do the big car chase where they get the case, and then it turns out that it was a setup. But the thing about it is Robert De Niro's character, Sam, who throughout it is all like, I'm just here to get paid and do whatever and do what have you. At the point where they do the job, and this is the thing, the thing where it, it, it almost has a triumph is that Robert De Niro's character is very much, he treats the whole thing as a job and so the conversations they have are like well i'm going to need this kind of grenade launcher and the director is obviously saying to them you have to be talking about this the same way that if you were a construction crew you're going to well we'll need this kind of drill bit to get through the rock and blah 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 and here's the geological survey you're talking about it as if it's just a thing that you are doing but that thing happens to be espionage spycraft and uh, staging things in misdirection and what have you sean bean's character exists entirely to show the contrast to this that he's just some chancer and he gets terribly overexcited about everything and is far too blunt and has no spycraft whatsoever and they rumble him as an imposter and send him off into the night by himself but then later on in the film after they've been sold out you you instantly on this day and age and we think wait a second these guys are just doing this to get paid okay so they did what they were supposed to do and it turned out that things weren't exactly what they were supposed to be but if you were a tradesman you said well you paid me to do this job on this day we retrieved the case the case happened to have a bomb in it 
but we've still done the job. Where's our money? I'm off. Instead of which, they go into this incredibly protracted further sequence of shooting, shooty, shooty scenes and car chases until they get to the end, at which point it's revealed uh, to no one who is actually watching in the modern era because you're like, you spend literally 45 minutes Go, yeah, but all the way through, they've built up this very important feature they didn't have a scene where they said well we're done now can i have my money we'll go again but we didn't get the thing we wanted they switched out of the case well that's not my problem you paid me to do this i'm going to do this they never have a negotiation for further money he seems to do it because he's irritated at sell and skarsgård who makes a fairly anemic villain because all the time they could have done to set him up as a traitor and a villain they were instead showing you sean bean getting overexcited about things (laughs) which is a complete error of judgment because you've only got so much time in a film and really you're like oh really that guy's the traitor well i guess i didn't see that coming despite the fact it's stellan skarsgård due to the fact that they've had no time to introduce him as a character because they've been too busy watching sean bean jumping about doing a yorkshire accent at which point you spend all this time building up this idiot and then you go yeah that's it your part of the movie's over bye and he goes out the door would you not have been better served spending time instead ditching that whole redundant plot line because hey we get it they approach it like a job we don't need a counter example to understand that it would be better if um, it was like a three-way friendship where the three of them were very involved in planning the operation so it's Stellan Skarsgård, John Renault and Robert De Niro and then they pull it off and it turns out Stellan Skarsgård's a traitor even if you saw it coming at least you'd have the character to hold on to but you don't get that and then you don't understand why Jean Reno, uh, you don't understand really why Jean Reno does anything, but Jean Reno brings the acting chops to this in that he has the most wonderful Gallic shrug. He doesn't actually have to shrug, that's how Gallic it is. He's just very present, is why are you doing this? He's like, I don't know. It seems like something to do. Uh, I get to shoot people, you know, eh? Um, and that's fine. You understand that. And Robert De Niro, by the side, is a puzzle. You're like, why is he doing any of this? The only reason why he would possibly still be pursuing whatever's in this stupid suitcase is if he isn't actually... Oh, yes, he never left the CIA. He's actually a deep cover operative pretending to be a mercenary, and he has to get the case because he's not going to give it... Oh, in fact, the case was... Ne- he says... Specifically then, the case was never at issue. It was the man who wanted the case, played by Jonathan Price, possibly the world's least convincing Irish terrorist. I mean, he does the Irish accent, and he is an actor, but you just look at him going, oh, Jonathan, you're about as evil as a cucumber sandwich. Stop it. <laughs> and at the end, he shoots Jonathan Price, and then everybody goes home. You know, if you contrast it to things like Bad Boys the Rock, you start to think things like, well, compared to those, it is stylish. It has really good car chases. It's where, I mean, it makes as much sense as those, but in the modern era, this just doesn't cut the mustard and so in my head i was going to come here and talk about ronin the stylish action thriller of the late 90s uh, which uh, brought some old school virtuosity into a world that at the time was just filled with slow motion american flags and helicopters with their blades wearing and that they showed you some gritty i mean all the car chases are done with proper cars there's no cg john frankenheimer wouldn't be having any of that it uses all of the tricks from the french connection those are great but the actual film film itself is very transparently a very shoddily constructed frame on which to hang three great car chases so you know it it kind of diminishes it in reverse gentlemen i give you the 
the the poorly aging Ronin for your consideration. I I have seen this movie. I saw it in the cinema as well. I think my dad wanted me to, wanted to go see it, so I went and saw it with him. I mean, it was on holiday or something. Yes, of course, it's Ronin because he's supposed to be, he's masterless now because he's left the CIA. So that was that was the conceit. And of course, we're never going to tell you what the MacGuffin is in the suitcase. We're never going to tell you. But let me just say, after the resolution of the suitcase malarkey, peace broke out in Northern Ireland. Just saying. Yes, I, I, I have to say, I do enjoy watching a film about professionals getting on with a job. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the man inside me. He just likes tools and doing things. I don't know. But it's nice when there's no jerks. There's, there's not much in the way of being, Sean Bean is, you know, who's transparently a fool. It's just a matter of time until they've got enough evidence they can kick him out the group. But by and large, it's professionals getting on with a job. Issues not arising out of personality clashes or people having bullshit or, or doing stupid things. Uh, they come out of the things they have to deal with to get the job done. And of course, then we have the switch around. Of course, it's the, the MacGuffin. Is, yeah, they go get MacGuffin. MacGuffin gets taken by somebody else. They go get the MacGuffin, MacGuffin back again. I mean, there, there's your plot right there. But you know, the fact they just, just go about it and they're professional. And like, there is disrespect between John Renault. John Renault. And God, I Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro. Yeah, and so the, that's kind of nice. It's nice when you have professionals respecting each other and getting on with the job and doing it well. And neither of them oh, being yeah. superhuman, incidentally. Neither of yeah, them are I'm born. not, I'm not. Yeah, no, I'm not arguing uh, oh, no, I wasn't with certain bits of it. Oh, yeah, I wasn't critical. I mean, I think it's true. It probably is aging badly. But uh, I think, you know, as, as a kind of throwback to 70s, May the 90s, it probably should be aging badly. But I appreciated it for what it was. And, and certainly I haven't seen it again since. And yes, it is quite memorable, Sean Bean getting kicked out of the movie halfway in. He's literally shown the door. Go on. Yes, very, very much. I mean, yeah, uh, Robert De Niro gets some, uh, gets some good lines and some pretty creaky lines i think the most memorable line in the film is the one that cruises the line between terrible and good it's like is it so terrible it's good is it pretty good but it has an underlying seam of terribleness it's a bit where uh, it's like um, he says something along the lines of you can't even remember the beginning of it it's like uh, always watch the exits that's the first thing they teach you john renault turns to him and who are they i don't remember that's the second thing they teach you. And at which point, anyone who's watching it on a DVD has someone in the room go, wait a second, so what you're saying is, it's like, if I was doing a maths class and then I solved the quadratic equation, I said, that's the first thing they taught me. Who taught you? I don't know. My teacher taught me to forget who they were. It's like, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. What is that about? Um, so, yeah. but And, and I think... I think uh, having reiterated it here, it is a line that is so bad, it's actually genius. Possibly not the best thing to pick. But there's a lot of this where Robert De Niro just talks about things or does things. Uh, the bit where he ambushes Sean Bean with a cup of coffee is on the other side of that. It's brilliant. So, yeah, the, the film is uneven in its, you know, it has good scenes, it has bad scenes. And I think what makes it age badly is that I, th I think these days people will make a bad movie that's consistently bad, like Sharknado, or they'll make a movie that has a sufficient quality to get past a certain bar. No longer do we make a movie where certain parts are really good, because what we've learned is that if certain parts are really good and other parts are mind-crunchingly terrible, the mind-crunchingly terrible bits actually drag all the good bits into a morass of hate and despair. 
So at least if the whole thing is in that morass, like a Transformers sequel, then it's all of a similar level. So it's homogenous. I think we want more homogeneity in movies these days. And uh, Ronan is not homogenous. So, Justin, you have an R. What R do you have for us? Well, now, uh, well, well, you mentioned Hitchcock. I thought it was about time. I've, I've dealt with Hitchcock before, but not directly. Um, I thought it was about time. So I will choose one of my, probably my favourite Hitchcock film, and that is Rear Window. The setup is brilliant. The central character is in a wheelchair. He's a photographer. This is James Stewart. And uh, he has an accident, and he is now confined with his leg in plaster to just, just sit in his apartment, essentially. He's fortunately, he kind of lives in this block where there's a, where there's good view of, I mean, it's an incredible set, of all of his neighbours, all, all of them who like to leave their, you know, they don't, they don't believe in kind of closing the curtains at all. So he has this vast tapestry of life that he spends... The first part of the film, it's a, it's a nice summer, it's hot, and he, you know, he kind of makes that, he doesn't really know these people that well, so he gives them nicknames, and he watches them play out their little lives, almost like he's watching kind of TV, as he kind of glances from window to window, so, you know, there's, there's different kind of stories being played, and there's kind of like a couple in love, there's, there's a sculpture, there's a dancer, so he kind of watches all this, and he's, he, you know, he's enjoying the kind of the, um, voyeurism of this. And then one of the cat, one of the neighbours, he sees, he begins to get suspicious of this, this kind of, this kind of husband and wife. I think they're having rows. And then the next minute, you know, he sees him kind of carrying this enormous case out of his apartment. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any sign of the of the wife. So he he then begins to kind of voice his concerns to Grace Kelly, kind of archetypal, kind of Hitchcock blonde, really. I would say. In his mind, he's picturing this kind of thing. So anyway, he's he's determined to to put now. But but here's the thing: the entire thing, pretty much everything, happens just from the perspective of of the main character. You, we do not leave the apartment. Everything we see just from the window, looking sometimes with the camera zooming up on things. So there's this kind of distraction when he's not capable of doing anything other than send people out is what he does he's got a nurse and he's got gross to investigate but he is himself kind of just physically unable to do anything and therefore he just has to sit and watch so of course now what happens is raymond burr who plays the the husband is clearly up to no good but he's trying to they're trying to work out what's going on so you know at one point a dog dies and then then uh, james stewart believes that well he must have maybe buried the body in the garden so they, they send them down there and no that's not there's nothing there and then finally, uh, Grace Kelly goes to the apartment to kind of check it out. And, of course, he confronts the, the, the husband, kind of comes back. And, you know, it, and you're seeing this kind of tension. He calls the police. She then signals that she's found a wedding ring that he's kind of zooming up on. And so he, I mean, incredible kind of levels of story. You're picking up all these little details just from this position. And then, of course, finally, you know, the guy realizes, works out what's going on. And he, and he confronts him. And he actually comes to the apartment. So obviously then you're kind of helpless. And there's a fantastic fight sweep sequence with James Stewart. You know, the only way he could possibly deal with this is just literally firing off his flash, his gun on his camera to kind of stun uh, Raymond Burr. Um, and in the end, you know, I mean, he, he ends up kind of falling off the balcony and, and having two legs in plaster at the end of the film. I mean, it's like so tense. You know, you want to run up and run away from the situation or go over there or do something. You can't. Everything you're seeing is just through the windows. All of these kind of see things played out. It's beautiful. It's kind of 
it's it's dramatic. You know, Hitchcock has done this before with a very constricted kind of put these limitations on characters or situations he's done before. But here, everything kind of comes together. You know, you're kind of rooted to this spot, helpless, but also you, you know, you're frustrated and tense. And of course, when the final kind of thing, when Rambo comes, and, I mean, you know, you really feel for the character. I mean, what realistically can the guy do? He sat in a, in, in a wheelchair with his leg in plaster. He's, so yeah, it's, you know, perfect. I mean, I, I mean, I'm big, I'm a big Hitchcock fan, but I mean, this, something, you know, there was something special happened with that. Just these little, you know, this framing mechanism, just seeing the world played out and the kind of thing, because it's everyone, people watches. So you can imagine this guy just seeing these little frames alive. And what would you do if you were watching everyone go about their business and suddenly something was a bit odd and strange, but you weren't really in a way of, in a, in a position to do much about it other than tell the police and they might just think you're a, you know, uh, an, an idiot for assuming so things. So, so yes, rear window. Is a darn fine thriller. It's been remade numerous times. And indeed, the, the beginning of the film is lovely because it is a massive set with all the, you know, he's looking out yeah. on, on the yard against all, all the, the sort of little minute dramas that play out before him. And he talks over them like a god looking down on them. And, you know, all, all these lives and all these characters that populate the world. It's, it's yeah. very clever because in the day, he's just stuck in his room. I mean, it's, it's almost a stage play. He's stuck in his apartment. He's in a wheelchair with a broken leg. What's he going to do? And it's, it's a great kind of reverse take on a murder mystery. We know who the victim is, we know who the murderer is, but we've got no way of proving it other than our accusation and a few funny things we've seen that have led us to this conclusion. Like, how did you go about? Because I believe he starts trying to trick him and harass him. He rings up and goes, I know what you've done and things like that. And try and force yeah. him into performing yeah, certain things that would incriminate him. So we can see his response when he picks up the phone. Hmm. Um, and Point, this is a great, this is, this is, this is just brilliant, right? Considering what's happening in this set, at one point he gets Grace Kelly to kind of lure him away so that he can get someone else to go in there or some, something. Um, and so, but you see all that because, you know, just past these buildings, there's a gap and you can see a, like a, a bar across the road, you know? So you, so you can see all of that happening, um, just from this vantage point. I mean, it's, yeah, amazing. Uh, yes, well, as you said, it's been remade uh, numerous times, but in addition to being actually remade, it's also uh, they've been a victim of uh, update fever. They've always gone, oh, Rear Window, that's a brilliant movie, isn't it? What if we updated it? And it's unusual because here we are in the middle of the alphabet, and yet suddenly we hear a certain noise. What's that noise that we hear? Sheer Booth noise, unfortunately, oh. Oh. because they made a film a couple of years ago called Disturbia, starring Mr. LaBeouf, and uh, in that he's ha- under house arrest, and he believes that his neighbours are up to no good, but he can't leave the perimeter of his house uh, because he's been doing something, you know, like the youth do because adults don't understand, or something, or just because placing Sheer LaBeouf under house arrest sounds like a jolly good idea. If we could get Justin Bieber and put him in with them, maybe they could have some kind of Thunderdome-like battle to the death and then we'd only have one annoying thing to deal with instead of two but anyway i'm i'm digressing yeah so they did that and they also of course the other uh famous attempt to update the idea of rear window with what could be termed as spectacularly off 
is the 1990s movie Sliver, in which we turn uh, it into all about Sharon Stone having a nice time in the bath uh, and someone watching like all of the cameras on a, a high rise. The, the point about it is that film students and, and those who write essays for film students will bang on about Rear Window and its idea of, uh, of, of undermining the, of the voyeuristic nature of film and the relationship between the viewer and doing all of these things. And and although all of this is true, it does actually expose the genius of Hitchcock that people, although it's fairly easy to grasp what people are on about, actually doing it as a film turns out to be incredibly difficult because people fail to do it consistently and yeah. all the time. Well, the thing about uh, Hitchcock, of course, was that he was a meticulous planner. He loved planning movies. So I think you know, he had all this worked out and storyboarded in his head before he even you know, set off to start shooting this thing. The other thing about planning, as you know, Ian, is that uh, it, it means that if you are a meticulous planner, you will spot all the stupid, goofy things that you could do with a plot before they come up. So they don't come up, which is something that cannot be said of the people who wrote Disturbia or indeed Sliver. There was also another one starring a TV movie starring Christopher Reeve. Yes, of course. Uh, oh, that's terrible. Yes, yes. Uh, well, it was a bit. Was. I mean, it's like, oh, you're you're now quadriplegic. Hey, I've got a role for you. That's well, not a good thing. You, well, well, of course, at the end, uh, the murderer comes in and turns off his ventilator, and he was genuinely gasping. That was a bit uncomfortable. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he said, feeling the discomfort in the room. There was, in fact, a lot of discomfort in the room. So, yeah, interestingly, Justin, uh, and uh, we can't obviously do this now unless I'm about to uh, uh, I'm about to tread on Ian's toes. It, when you said uh, a Hitchcock movie, one of your favourites, beginning with R, I, of course, thought of Rope, which is actually my favourite Hitchcock movie, but it didn't pop into my head to talk about it. Instead, I uh, talked about a disappointing film. With I was going to mention Rope, because Rope has a similar constraint in terms of it all being set in the same room. So yes. this is this is kind of Hitchcock's, I guess. Yeah, you know, he. Oh, I guess he's, he kind of loves kind of plays and, and 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 using that kind of thing in films. But yeah, that's a that's a very that's a very obviously a great film as well. Yeah. So that is Rear Window. So uh, Ian, what's uh, been happening on your television window in regards to your R? He said with a, a segue that is so clumsy it might have come out of Ronin. I can see the movie pitch my R now. Hey, how about we do Jaws? but set in Australia. Well, that could work, you know. They've got sharks in Australia, lots of nice beaches. No, 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 no. It's in the outback. Oh, there's no sharks in the outback. There's no water. Exactly. Oh, I know. Instead of a shark, we'll have a pig. Huh? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, I give you Razorback. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Finding your wife's wedding ring in a pile of hog shit is no way to find out what happened to her. It sounds silly, and I suppose it is, but for a film about a killer pig in the Australian outback, it's darn fine. 94 Australian film. Uh, for its low budget, it's technically well shot and makes good use of suspense, uh, like Jaws does. It doesn't linger on the pig muppet too long. It opens with a man, Bill Kerr, failing to defend his home from a thunderous assault from the titular pig, which blazes through his wooden home like a bull, sitting his grandson and burning the house down. He stands trial, is vilified, but escapes prison due to lack of evidence, but vows vengeance two years later 
later. Cut to the States for imported American actors. Here comes Judy Morris, TV reporter, says a sudden romantic goodbye to her domesticated husband on the anniversary as she goes off to Oz to cover the gripping story of hunted Australian wildlife. Now, in Australia, she walks into a rustic, rustic bar with a cameraman, silence, just can interview any kangaroo shooters, gets laughed out of the building. And yeah, this is all about the ruse being hunted to extinction. Which does in Australia, I find that hilarious that kangaroos could go extinct. Anyway, she's out of her depth and unable to contact New York and everyone treats her as daft, which she is. So then she tries sneaking up to an illegal <laughs> abattoir with sinister music playing. So she gets spotted and immediately runs away. So uh, naturally up against this feeble reporter, the only natural response is to try and murder her by running a car off the road at night and trying to rape her. Good news, a Razorback turns up and chases off the hillbillies. Bad news, then it eats her. So we start the film all over again. This time, when no body is found, they assume she fell down a mineshaft and her husband turns up America, played by Chris Haywood, to find the answers. And so here we have our dynamic, a large and helpful group of locals and rue-hunting enthusiasts, some of them operating an illegal cannery with the willingness to murder any outsiders who threaten it, along with dangerous local wildlife of bulls who are being whipped into a frenzy by something set in the backdrop of Australia's harsh environment, with only one or two sympathetic characters about, one of them being Bill Kerr, who was now a adapted his truck into a hog-haunting behemoth. Threat rarely lets up in this monstrous tale uh, with evil hicks that culminates in a showdown at a local meat processing factory where all throck pleds collide along with the appropriate hog-grinding, mincing industrial grinder. Uh, the director of this was actually was Russell Mulcahy. 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 Let's all say it again, everybody. Who was, you know, leading music uh, video director in the world at the time, and he wanted to be doing a feature, but not kicking off musicals. Finally, he gets offered to do Razorback. He leaps at it, and here we are. It was mostly shot in Broken Hill, which I think is too far away from me. Uh, the Australian Cinematic Society said it gave it the award for best cinematography and best acting that year. Yes, it also won a cinematography award as well. So it's, it looks great, beautiful shot, low budget, uh, never lets up, thumping good, chased around by a giant pig in the Australian Outback uh, monster movie. Go. I've seen the opening scene, which is uh, kind of cartoonish in a way, when the thing, like, the hole appears in the house. Like, yes. Boom! You know, there's rumbling in the night, and then suddenly, whoosh! Yes. Noisy. It is a it is a genuinely <clears throat> huge big monstrous boar. Yes, it's, it's, it's uh, utterly ridiculous. So, yeah. You're quite right, but it's like I've explained the setup. It's it's going to be ridiculous from the onset. It, its genes are ridiculous, but for what it is, I thought it was quite good. I think there is a, a thing in which there's two levels of ridiculous though. There's the level of ridiculous of Sharknado and Black Sheep, the one with the genetically altered sheep, where they're actually obviously trying to take the piss. Whereas Razorback. Dan- I think where it, it, it really ha- where we really have an opportunity is when it dances the line between are they kidding or I'm not sure. You know that they're kidding in Sharknado. You know that they're kidding in Black Sheep. It's like the people making the film are turning around and giving you a big wink. With Razorback, there's that thing of like, no, seriously, this could this is really awful and dangerous. No, really. And then they wink at you and you're like, oh, you're joking. And I go, no, I'm not joking. This could really happen and it's terrible. No, really, it's a big pig. Yeah, yeah, I know, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, but they can get pretty big, you know. It's that <laughs> level of toying with the audience about, are they joking or not? That's where you want to hit. And, sorry, genetically engineered quasi-zombie sheep is not a way to go. Not that I've actually seen black sheep. It might be terrifying, I don't know. I have seen that, but I, I haven't seen right. 
there. So I, I can't, I can't comment, although I feel I should investigate now. I feel I have now finally presented a film neither of you have seen, and it is a glorious <laughs> yes. feeling to be behold, can I just say. <laughs> I saw this. Uh, a friend of mine had the because it was it was it was more it did get a limited release, but it was pretty much a straight to D, straight to video film for everyone else. I think he rented it out and went on his place to watch it. And afterwards, it's come out thinking, yeah, yeah, I want to see lots of genres now of different animals attacking, and it'd be great and everything. Little did I realize this was actually a thing that was going on. So it, it left me suitably impressed at the time. Indeed. So there we go. Uh, Razorback killer pigs coming at you. Uh, Justin, you had well, better get your S because soon you will not be joining yes. us any further. So, uh, so, so let us hear what uh, S you have in the bag. Well, now this, is a bit of, this, is a, this is a bit of a, a change from that. I'm talking about this film because I find it very difficult to talk about it like as a film. Like, oh, wow. Yeah, that was a good. I enjoyed that film. Because it's more something that is an important film to watch, and that is Schindler's List. There's very, very few films I would say is important that everyone should watch this film, and and and, and pretty much, you know, Schindler's is 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 up there in that list of you know one or two kind of things. It, it's also a very important film for Spielberg, really, because this this is a film where Spielberg, for for years, he didn't think he was capable of doing it, and actually passed the script around to a number of much more kind of notable directors. But in the end, thankfully, I mean, he decided to do it. Up, to, I mean, since then, you know, we've seen plenty more kind of political or more 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 grown-up, let's say, uh, Spielberg films. But up to this point, you know, we just had Jurassic Park, right? And so Spielberg was very much in his in his mode that we're all familiar with, kind of family, kind of light, light upbeat uh, kind of films. And then we have this, which, you know, you know, it's not going to be a typical Spielberg film, obviously, from the subject matter. But my God, I mean, you know, obviously anything dealing with the Holocaust is going to be powerful. It's going to be upsetting. But he doesn't hold back in this, which is what you, you know, I remember people going along thinking, is he going to kind of schmaltzify it? Is it, you know, he he shoots it in a kind of documentary style. He didn't uh, storyboard it. It's black and white. And that's important. You know, he kind of talks about you know, colour being kind of life, you know, uh, uh, and therefore how could that possibly be part of anything based on the Holocaust? Um, so it's striking for that. It doesn't hold back. Like a, It seems like it's going on forever. I think it's about 15-minute sequence where they're basically, the Nazis are just systematically killing people in a ghetto. The thing that shocked me about it is, like, it's so just matter-of-fact Shoot a gun, dead, dead, dead. Like there is, you don't even, it's so shocking that you don't, I mean, you don't have a chance to even form anything about these people because in a second they're introduced, you know, a second later they are just dead and, and it keeps going on and it's like, oh my God, this is, this is obviously, this is touching on, you know, the, this, this, this compared to obviously what's actually happening is, is, is minute in terms of emotion and everything else. But my God, does it work on, on that screen? It's obviously kind of a stellar cast. John Williams music again, but John Williams again, this is grown up kind of, you know, he's, 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 this music is not the kind of um, soundscape that John Williams normally does. You know, you could arguably say that he's, he's kind of doing kind of half the film, you know, certainly with Spielberg things because of the, the kind of motion put into it. Um, it's very subtle. Um, you're not going to get like a big orchestra kind of playing out these scenes. It's very poignant and obviously kind of emotional as is appropriate. 
And again, you know, there's like some techniques in there that Spielberg tones down his kind of thing. It's it's very realistic, but he uses color very importantly. Like there's a bit of color at the beginning and a little bit at the end. And then obviously you've got the kind of red dress of the girl is kind of killed in it. These all things are kind of symbolic. There's very reasons why he's doing that. And obviously the color, the beginning, and the end is kind of meant to be, you know, the life being diminished and then obviously hope at the end. Obviously intense and powerful. I came out of that. I've only seen it once. I don't think I could watch it again, quite frankly. It was rather traumatic, as I imagine it would have been for a lot of people. It pretty much said everything that I ever want to see depicted about that subject. And then I just went, wow, okay, that's an important film. People need to see this. At the time, I believe the reason that Spielberg was keen to make it, because there was a lot of uh, people, uh, Holocaust deniers, that was a thing that was happening. So that was the thing that spurred him into going, right, this is going, I'm not, I'm not going to allow that to happen. So this is going to be mainstream America, have this film and there, you know, think about it. It's a very important film, but I find it difficult to talk about in terms of a film like, well, you know, that's uh, a fantastic kind of mise-en-scene and fantastic, you know, because it's kind of not really about that at all. You know, it's about, it's showing reference to something obviously deeply kind of ingrained into uh, a, a vast kind of way of people. So it's a, incredibly respectable for that. And it's just, you know, as in terms of cinema, you, I mean, this is really what cinema should be. You know, you, you should, as well as the fluff and the fun, and we all talk about um, geeky stuff all the time, you know, and obviously that's great. And, and uh, I, they're most of the films I want to see but cinema should also do stuff like this it should give you an insight for something that you can't possibly imagine unless you've experienced it but it can give you enough of an insight that is chillingly close to kind of you know take note and take heed and you know pray to god that nothing on that scale of that like ever happens again the thing I'd like to focus on, well, two things. Firstly, do you think it's really appropriate to focus on a film about Jews just after I do a film about pigs? Seriously, Justin? <laughs> <laughs> the, the other thing <laughs> I, I want to talk about is really just how everyone in this is human. And I think that is another very important thing you've got to establish about the Holocaust. Because as soon as we say, oh, well, they were monsters, they excuse their behavior because monsters eat people. No, these humans these were civilized people this was the 20th century and my goodness this actually happened and the bizarre thing about holocaust denies is they're kind of saying oh no it wasn't seven million jews it's about four million jews it's like you're missing the point four million jews is still four billion too many those meetings were documented we know they happened they know they commissioned extermination i don't care if they killed one person it was still a crime against humanity it's, it's this strange disconnect they have. The other Jews are, are pushing the numbers for sympathy. Well, there's a, there's a definite grievance here, whether it's 4 million or 7 million. I don't ever quite got that. But yes, it is the hu- humanizing, even the despicable kind of, you know, oh, what's his name? The, the guy who runs the camp. Even he, a flawed, nasty creature that he is, is shown to have a kind of weakness and and even though he's committed to this evil he's doing and wants to show no humanity towards the Jews whatsoever he's still human himself it's still a believable person he's not just a, a black and white villain even though everything he does is evil and and for me that was like the very important thing also Oscar Schindler himself is no black and white hero he had definite flaws to him as well yeah, i think it's i think a redemption 
yeah, he definitely did start out going, well, I've got an exploitable workforce here now. He just gains sympathy for them later. You know, and he, and he, did, he did at the margins exploit his power slightly he had over them. But generally speaking, by the end, he was simply a crusader. He just, it's like, you know, that whole thing at the end where they, they, they melt down the gold from their teeth and give him a, a ring or something. And he's like, I could have solved this and, and save some more people. It is a, a, the triumph of humanity. Then this thing, this thing was done. It was done by humans, but it was just kind of the human nature revolts against it. And no, actually, this is not cool. This isn't okay. We're not going to get over this. This has to stop. Very, very worthy film. It's almost criticism proof. I think it totally because it's a subject on how it deals with it. So, Leo, your thoughts. Uh, well, one, I'd like to thank Justin for God winning the podcast. Uh, it says that if any discussion happens on the Internet, uh, automatically at some point it's going to go into the subject of uh, Nazis and stuff. And so here we are. I mean, how much more Nazi could you get uh, than uh, the film about, uh, you know, well, Schindler's List indeed. Now, uh, here's an interesting thing. Uh, Justin, you made the statement that this is a film that people should see. So. In your opinion, Justin, is this to the level where you find that this film is a film that kind of transcends the barriers of cinema and it's something that people need to see as a cultural touchstone that is, regardless of its status as a piece of uh, filmic, for want of a better word, entertainment, that it's something that people should be introduced to just as a as a work of art, let us even say. Is um, that your opinion? I would say it should be it's in schools, you know, it's like something that it, it's, it's difficult to classify as such as a film in the same terms yes. because the subject matter is is bigger you know yes. bigger than that so uh, it is fair to say i think that you have a higher opinion of it than the licensing people at whatever studio uh maybe and i'm going to guess although i don't know that it's possible well, it must have something to do with dreamworks but it depends who the distributor is and that's possibly universal because they have been really big gits for quite a while i've noticed now it's the universal films that you remember fondly that you cannot find on any streaming service and nice. so it is with schindler's list schindler's list you have to go out of your way to watch it and i have heard from everyone who's ever seen it oh brilliant film very important film everyone should watch it i'm not sure i could watch it again so there is uh, to a certain extent an argument to be made there that it's irresponsible of the distributor to make a barrier to people watching it because when i hear that i'm like well i can't setting aside the time it might be important but then if there's a further barrier such as not being able to handily get your hands on a copy then that that kind of defeats the whole thing this is the heart of it never came up with most films you know you go okay that's not available for me to watch people have assured me it's good i should watch it but i it's not come up i can't get it easily i'll just leave it and i actually feel a little bit like no i should be able to access this movie somewhere without going too far out of my way and by the same token i feel that as it's an experience that most people only want to have once it it should be available on such a basis you can rent it and i might even go that far but i find it interesting that your opinion and experience of this movie and indeed everyone else's is the same that it's an incredibly important uh, even text for history culture so on and so forth and yet if people haven't seen it then there is a barrier to entry uh, a very small one 
but it it exists. And maybe that's where the argument should be made that this is a film that should be for everybody all the time, regardless. And in fact, it is not at this time in that category, uh, at which point I have nothing further to say for the barrier to entry was too high for me and my rolls of fat to climb so, over. So I, I haven't seen it. You have, well, you have something to do. <clears throat> so you, you haven't seen Schindler's List. You also no. haven't seen Jaws. What do you have against Steven Spielberg exactly, Leo? Is it the <clears throat> fact he's Jewish? Uh, no, I've seen Jurassic Park. I enjoyed that. I've seen Closer <laughs> Cows, the third it. kind. Uh, no, I, I liked, uh, I liked, uh, no, I, I like Jurassic Park. It's fine. I just like, I think it's slightly overrated. That's all. But I like Indiana Jones. Watch those, you know, blah, 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 blah. I know, but it's just, yeah, I, weirdly, yeah, Jaws never came up. And that's the thing. But I can't, I have I, to say, it's not, not something you'd go like, oh, I'll tell you what, we, Wife, what we're going to do tonight, we're going to have a treat, we're going to watch, you know, a film about the Holocaust. Yeah. It's not something that you're going to run in, into, okay? No. Uh, um, just saying, like, it is something that everyone needs to see. Yes. Well, I'll have to book it in in the diary, because, of course, it's impossible tonight for we're recording this on the day of the uh, most important calendar day of the year. <laughs> the Eurovision Song Contest is on later. We're getting our cake, we're getting our party food, and we're uh, getting on down with some of the best music that Europe has to offer uh, for surely they would not put and Australia up. apparently and, as well and Australia as well which means that if you were interested in you could stay up and join us because I'm sure they'll put it on live for you too being as you're part of I the can, contest I can there. already feel the joy emanating yeah, from Ian I'm, yes, I'm, yeah. got, I'm busy drinking myself to death tonight so I can't join you <laughs> <laughs> yes you will be probably asleep or it'll be first thing in the morning for you or you'll get the results just at, at waking wow. up time the actual contest will How go will you get all the time that you're asleep it's like How Christmas. would you get to sleep? I don't know, Ian. You will have a restless night. No, Ian won't watch it live till they let uh, Gallifrey enter the Eurovision. Yes. Well, you know. I have to go. Sorry. Oh, you're I... going to go now, are you, uh, Justin? Yes. All right, then. Off you go. So I shall see you later. All right, then. Ah. So, Ian, yes, your S. Well, you know, Leo, plants are nice and robots are cute. Isn't it jolly sad when they die? I am, of course, talking about 1972's Silent Running. Uh, good Lord. Yeah, good Lord. Is this, are you taking yes. them back? You want to sit down? Oh, you I am taking them back. I'm fine. I'm fine. But yes. You carry on. The story is weak. Uh, the eco message is ham-fisted, but the acting visual effects... And for the child in me, those robots are riveting to watch. It's the future and Earth is a barren wasteland where we all live on protein pills. Made from what? I have no idea. Nasty solar science, I suppose. In space, the Freighter Valley Forge carries six biodomes containing all the remaining examples of plant life in existence because building biodomes on Earth would be stupidly easy. Of the four-man crew, only Bruce Dern actually only likes being a gardener. The other guy's just there for being a job. So when word comes to destroy the gardens with fricking nukes, Dern rebels, kills his fellow crew members, and flies off the 
be alone in space with one remaining garden and three fascinating robots. And it's the robots that really hooked me when I saw this as a kid. They're not cute. They look squat and industrial, but they're played by bilateral amputees. And so through a trick of perspective, you, you can't really see how there's a man inside them, even though there must be a man inside them. You can't see how they could fit them all in. Answer, they didn't. I think these the three little silent drones were brilliant and given a childlike attitude. And they are the, our protagonist's only company for the majority of the film. You will weep when one of them dies outside the ship and cry again when Dern runs over another by accident, crippling it. Uh, he teaches the robot mechanics to be gardeners and play poker. He gets to walk about in his favourite garden in his favourite Jesus robe and being all in touch with nature. But then the plants start dying. Why, God, why? Oh, they need sunlight? Well, better put up some lamps then, which is so dumb. Well, they need sunlight, you idiots. Alas, Sir Ships are closing in, so he jettisons the remaining garden space and nukes himself with the crippled robot for company because, you know, the damaged one would only slow down the able one. Sure, I'm sure I just don't want to die alone or something. And the film ends with the, with the last robot in the garden tending the plants with a little battered watering can. Isn't it absolutely adorable? And we can only speculate about what, what's, what this film's actual message is. Um, eco-terrorists are in the right. Uh, people hating plants is, is wrong. Uh, robots are adorable. I'll give them the last one. Uh, Mark Commode, our perennial reviewer we refer to on this podcast, has frequently named the film as one of his personal favourites in his BBC blog, on more than one occasion stating it as his preference over 2001 A Space Odyssey. So, uh, gardens, cute robots, and a muddled eco-message, I give you 1972's Silent Running. Well, there's about to be an evolution to the concept of it never coming up. It's not true that this never came up. I remember the opportunity that this had to come up was, you know, here's something that we've also mentioned quite a lot on this show. When the BBC used to run seasons of films and occasionally at the time, obviously being the mid 80s, science fiction was a thing where you could run a series of, oh, we're just going to run a grab bag of science fiction movies that we can. There's no thematic. I mean, one week you'd have invaders from Mars and the next week you'd have silent running, for example, or and then they'd put King. Kong on as well and just they'd run them all as if they were all part of a, a whole yeah and of course my dad being a science fiction writer was all for me as a child understanding science fiction through the medium of cinema and films that he thought were good uh, and the thing about it was that sometimes uh, in life when you're a child you could watch the film that's on BBC Two right now or there's other things that you might like to watch instead there was a time when if there were two things on two competing channels that you might want to watch you had to choose one and there was no way to watch the other one and uh, usually the science fiction film would be allowed to stand and my dad would skip co- he likes soap operas for some reason or used to anyway Coronation Street or EastEnders even though they clash do you really want to watch Silent Running and I said I don't know why you ask because it's in the science fiction series so i would have thought this would be a shoe in he said no it's just a stupid thing about a man on a ship with a bunch of trees you don't want to watch that do you i don't know it's very boring he said oh well maybe i'll skip it and go and play my legos then all right then and that's how i came not to ever see silent running because my dad has no time for it 
whatsoever. And I imagine it's probably because my dad is a big fan of science. He loves science. And for some reason, I don't know what it is, he sees silent running as being somewhat anti-science. And therefore, it's on his permanent dirty list of films we never talk about. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So there we go. So not only have I not seen silent running, I have been actively warned off it by uh, the the the... My father, uh, who who what bored me. So there we go. Well, I suppose yeah, because he's a big he's big into science. He's big on like let's gen- genetically modify our food. Why not? This will feed the world. This is a good thing. Of course, the film denounces people eating protein packs and pills. I suppose it strawmans your dad's position slightly by going. In that case, the world shall be a wasteland devoid of plant life. I mean, how does anything live on Earth then? It's like I don't know how we could extract protein in a science lab without an organic component somewhere being harvested. So isn't the Earth like an airless rock devoid of even humans now or something? The film itself, its model work, its robots, uh, the portrayal of science, I think, is generally quite good for its post-2001, you know, early 70s era. That's all very good. In fact, I think I believe the ship itself was recycled for Battlestar Galactica as one of the ships of the fleet. But yes, the story is just where it's lacking. And the fact it does devolve very quickly down to one man being alone on a spaceship and he likes his garden and he likes his cute robots. It's the actor's performance, I'm sure, that sustains you through it. And so I'm not going to command you to watch this film, but it was certainly something to me that afterwards you just, you will want to own one of those little robots that go around and do little jobs around your house because they are simply so adorable and so unique that they're not, they're not you can look at them and it doesn't seem like it's a human shape inside them and and so that makes them quite compelling and same way i think daleks are compelling because they like human characteristics in, in their design uh so anyway uh another film you haven't seen so i feel doubly blessed today haven't yes, I haven't seen Razorback, I haven't seen uh, Schindler's List, I haven't seen Silent Running, so we've hit quite a few films that I, I, I haven't really seen uh, much of. Uh, just to complete the uh, picture here, uh, my dad also doesn't like Silent Green because he says it's stupid, but I think he likes it slightly more. He'll tolerate it more than Silent Running due to the fact that it's just stupid. In fact, he would question the sanity of anyone who, for example, wanted to sit through Zardoz, but he wouldn't actually say, he just said, well, what, what the hell is that all about? Whereas right. Silent Running, I actually think he's actually took against. Right, yeah, because uh, it, so, yeah. it has an eco message. And I think as, as a, he would just analyze that and go, no, the, the story is wrong at the fundamental level. Never mind those cute robots. Well, uh, and I think the other thing about it is as well, it doesn't help uh, a cause to put out a piece of transparently shoddy propaganda. Because, I mean, no, I think he's, generally for the scientific part of ecology let's not paint him as someone who's like i hate trees let's cut them all down and he's just saying you know if you're going to talk about a biosphere and how an ecology and how it's all getting this is not helping anyone this is like trying to present something that's complete fantasy as if it's some kind of serious reality rather that people watch fern gully because at least 
people aren't going to mistake that for something serious. And I think it's that sort of Trojan horse aspect yeah. of, you know, be worried about it or all your teeth will fall out and your face will stick like it is, is what he doesn't like because it's irresponsible. I, I kind of have to agree with him slightly about Silent Green. The same thing occurred to me when I was watching Cloud Atlas is that when you start harvesting people for food, I suppose it gets you over the immediate hump of there being too much food and not enough people, but it's an unsustainable model because people require food every day. And so you have a kind of conservation of resources going on here isn't good. You will very quickly be simply starving again. I think he's more concerned about the fact that it's a sort of overwrought melodrama masquerading as some kind of post-apocalyptic science fiction movie. And I think I think he's not a big Charlton Heston fan. I think that's what it comes down to. But yes, uh, so uh, we're going to leave uh, this week's podcast on a note of people exterminating plants and Jews and pigs and their wives um, and random people they've been paid to get rid of and the Martians and there being lots of dead people. It seems that the conflict between order and chaos evident in Pleasantville has infected the whole thing. Uh, so I think we probably end with a, a nice hopeful message about loving something even though it's deeply flawed and how we can all benefit from such an experience. For I present unto you uh, another film with the unusual step of having Sean Bean survive right through till the end in Silent Hill Revelations. Mm. Now, I picked on this one because, one, we kind of talked about Silent Hill, the original one, before, and two, because Silent Hill Revelations is uh, objectively pretty rubbish, but I'm a big sucker for Silent Hill. And then it kind of occurred to me as I was re-watching this. I mean, one of the things that the film gets devastatingly wrong is that in the original Silent Hill, Christoph Gunn looked at the video games and went, well, everything's kind of misty and washed out. and There's a kind of almost monochrome quality to it. We'll stick with that. And then the producers, the studio went, well, we looked at the first one and it's kind of grey and black and we don't like that. So why don't we just put loads of colour into it because we're going to shoot in 3D. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, now that doesn't really look much like Silent Hill at all due to the fact that there's a big saturated colour palette to help your 3D effects go a bit better. I mean, for reals. The thing about it is that what Silent Hill Revelations does, it pulls back the curtain on all the short comings of silent hill as a concept and if you can still like it and i enjoyed the movie i watched it again i enjoyed it i'm not sorry i own a copy it's a fairly straight mostly despite the addition of completely irrelevant kit harrington sort of run through of the silent hill 3 plot uh, with the devastating thing that in the film the, in the game rather the character played by sean bean <gasps> dies so you see him at the beginning go and if you know the game you're like oh dear it's not going to end well for you sean but then you probably saw that coming and then in a shock twist in this version he survives through to the end and you're like what but yeah because that's completely subverting that whole thing so i suppose it is counterculture in a particular way but then you know fans of the series moan about things like oh why do you have to put pyramid head and everything and then they go into the big thing of explaining that pyramid head was a particular sort of personification of a guilt held by a character in silent hill 2 and therefore is completely inappropriate to have him rock up in all the other stories where indeed in the games pyramid 
pyramid head does not rock up because he's a silent hill two thing god damn it wah wah call the ambulance nerd rage rage quit but the thing about it is right it's like freddy krueger or jason pyramid head is possibly the most iconic monster in the entire series so when you're trying to sell it to a mass market you kind of have to put pyramid head in however much he worked really well in silent hill 2 he's kind of a thing and therefore he has to be worked in and i have no objection watching a pyramid head in a movie is not a chore you know especially when the movie is so badly put together that you could just kind of oh this is a cool bit oh i'm enjoying this oh the cool bit's over now they've gone into some really ropey dialogue it suddenly occurs to you you're like oh god this is terrible it's a morass of half-baked metaphysical pablum that's been regurgitated none of it makes sense i mean you know it, it is a homage to steve Stephen King in the sense that like some of Stephen King's most half-baked works they don't actually have any real commitment to what's going on or explaining the quote-unquote mystery and because at the end of the day the original concept is oh well this dude goes to this town and then all this freaky stuff starts happening with fetus babies and deformed nurses that's the concept and then when somebody at the meeting said but, but why is that happening they said eh well make something up but that's and that's more or less exactly well, there's something to do with a, a cult and a ritual and and then they go oh i read some hp lovecraft one well if we had a gigantic dark elder god now why is he particularly interested in a small town in the middle of virginia i don't know he just is and it's it's all like that and the thing about it is this is no different in the games the games take longer to play through and to be honest they're an atmospheric experience in at least at the beginning i haven't got further than number four yet i do have the others but i haven't played them yet but i i have heard that they don't get better in quality up to that point so the whole thing is like well yeah this is silent hell if you were disappointed because they were giving you this i mean in fact possibly the least true to to form thing is that the writers of these two movies actually try to come up with some kind of consistent storyline and and try and actually write through character arcs and all the stuff they were taught to do in writing college and you're like dudes just forget it just really just walk just walk away just walk away it's not it's not going to happen. Uh, but they gamely try, and that's why the film falls flat on its face time and time again, because they're trying to stick close to the source material and simultaneously have it make sense and be about something. Two things which are fundamentally incompatible. Yet with all of this trashing that I've just given it, I love Silent Hill. And I think that Adelaide Clemens, who plays the main character from Silent Hill 3, does a bang-up job, and the bit with the bunnies is still good. And the the guy who plays the private investigator, he's still good too. And uh, they could have done with more fairground and less motel. And for my money, Kit Harrington didn't even need to be in it at all. The wacky cult were fine, but not great. Uh, it is clear that the reason one of the big problems with this movie is that they simply didn't have the budget to do what Silent Hill should do, which is blow your little socks off with some crazy, twisted industrial hellscape. 
which is obviously the point of the games. But in a film which has a budget that's so low, you've, you've got to pick and choose your moments. And so that's what they did. And it is still sad that at the end of the film, the girl gets picked up in a truck by none other than Peter Outerbridge, who is clearly being set up as this is a Lionsgate release for a little Canadian release a la Saw in the third Silent Hill movie to be the character from the fifth Silent Hill game and of course it did that poorly that they decided not to bother using that license or indeed having a Silent Hill film featuring as the starring character a character played by Peter Outerbridge house that is a that is the real tragedy of this movie that we didn't get that peter outerbridge silent hill film so there we go have you even seen either of the silent hill movies here okay yes i've seen the first silent hill movie i haven't seen the second we've talked about the first Silent Hill film i think in some detail in previous podcasts i've played the first two games i've seen the third one played through to the end i, I haven't seen any after that but as far as i understand the reviews none of them are as good as the first three uh, and uh, it's forever seems to try to get back to its glory days. Everyone keeps going back to it because they remember the glory days. But I, like you, I'm a big fan of this franchise where the environment itself, I don't think it needs explaining. I think the explanations for what it is sort of naturally occur to you as you experience it. It's an environment that is sort of passive-aggressive towards you and, and warped and parodied and inhabited by damn souls of which you are probably going to be one of them. And they have a lovely feeling of isolation and uh, collapsing institutions, especially Sun Hill 3. I remember that maybe you're, you're basically, you start off in the mall and that's shut down at night and that gets dark and weird. And then you have to kind of leave and go home. You have to go home through like crumbling ruined buildings before you get home and things like that as well. I was completely unaware that the Sun Hill sequel existed at all. It's, uh, was, had a budget of 20 million and made, uh, 52.3 million. So it didn't make three times back its own money, which is probably why we haven't had a, a third sound. Grief! Third sound film film, yeah. Well, no, that's, no, that's, no, that is, that actually surprises me now that they haven't pushed it forward to the third. Because, like I said, they lined up Peter Outerbridge, who's a bit of a cult actor. They can make it in Canada. It's a Lionsgate film. Um, I'm wondering if it's just sort of on the back burner. I mean, they've got all this stuff. Lionsgate have got, you know, Sinister, Insidious, all of these, uh, The Purge, all of these other horror franchises. And, you know, they've got a slate. Uh, maybe they just decided that Silent Hill can wait until they need, you know, something like that where the others have died. I didn't realize, because I was trying to look it up last night and I just kind of, you know, got lost. It was late. And, uh, and I just assumed that it had bombed, but that's not a bomb. That's just, Good, but not great. Do yes. You know what I mean? Yes. I mean, I think it's Silent Hill's a difficult universe to write in a film universe because, like I say, a lot, a, lot of, a lot of its menace is passive. Even the monsters are just kind of gnawing on you because you're walking past them at that particular moment in time. Nothing personal, not chasing you down across the entire map. Uh, and it's more like there's something around that is emanating evil and you're moving towards it and you're going to confront it and shut it down again. It's, 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 it's kind of menacing and unset, it's the unsettlingness of it all. That's what makes Sand Hill such a beautiful franchise. Uh, this is one I might actually try and track down. Uh, in fact, I feel, I feel like I should track down, at least watch on YouTube, best bits of the Sand Hill film as well, because it is, it is a franchise I do have a lot of affection for, as someone who isn't necessarily a big horror fan, because it's not 
splatter gore. It's more disgust and the feeling of doing something wrong and having horrible consequences spring upon you because you did not understand how the environment or the magic worked. The whole kind of your your mirror image of yourself starts getting covered in blood and, and the room itself becomes seething with blood as well and then stops moving because they have died and it's quite unnerving. Uh, it is a, uh, a beautiful series. It's terribly sad. It's gone to a bit of a decline. It's a shame the films have stalled, uh, but Silent Hill uh, always a favourite. Well, I think that well, it's worse than that, uh, Jim, because of course, I mean, one of the things about it is that you you have things uh, that that have really uh, taken Silent Hill out over time. Uh, I mean, in the PS3 generation, it is agreed that um, the Homecoming guy, Travis. Uh, Parker, I think his name is. The problem with him was that they'd had, you know, some dude followed by some other dude who was even more mopey than the first dude. And then ironically, what happened was, as we recall, in Silent Hill 3, they had a young teenage girl. And the Silent Hill developers were like, yeah, well, we were kind of sick of doing uh, Losers as the main character. So we thought we'd have someone with a little bit. Unfortunately, in a horror movie, having the protagonist be a teenage girl isn't quite such a groundbreaking departure as it is in the series of video games that it came from. So I think there is a certain level to which we go, oh, no, not another thing with a teenage girl protagonist. Oh, well, sorry, there we go. Uh, but they make the best of that that they can. Now, what's really interesting is that Silent Hill 4 tried something a bit different, and I think it might have got away with it, except for the fact that there were a number of phenomenally poor decisions. First of all, there was a limited space total uh, inventory system with no stacking. So if you've got a health item and then you've got the same health item, then you couldn't stack them into one space on your inventory which had like four spaces or something for you to carry and then you had a chest which had another 20 so you only had 24 slots so you end up like throwing things away but unfortunately there were certain objects which you got quite early on which were of no use whatsoever till later in the game and to get to that part where you needed that item you had to use other items and it just became this nightmare of 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 trying to make you know optimize and that's not a fun game you've got unlimited number of slots but you have to get from a to be and you need this object but you can't use that ah terrible and then there were enemies you actually physically couldn't kill that they thought it'd be fun to have a puzzle where you've got a sword that can trap ghosts but if you take the sword out of the ghost the ghost slowly comes back to life and after a few minutes it starts chasing you again and there is nothing you can do to get rid of the ghosts which is like well i suppose if they'd really thought that idea through it might be fun but in the way that they've done it it's just annoying and then they make you do the whole game twice once by yourself and then the second time with one of those useless companions who keeps getting into trouble if she dies you die and so basically they it was like silent hill 4 is like spooky stuff with an added heap shitload of frustration the game uh won't you enjoy playing that and ripping your hair out and screaming and just not with terror but with just complete anger and rage so yeah for not the best video game in the world although it does have some nice and it also doesn't help it's a complete tangent of it doesn't even mostly take place in silent hill and it just it's a bit weird but it's, the nice thing about that is you could completely skip it but up until this point, you've had human protagonists. So then in five, you get this Travis guy 
and he's like a trucker with massive muscles and he can really wield that crowbar and you're suddenly like well i feel less under threat now that i've got you know captain america goes to silent hill that doesn't help uh, so that's what people whinged about. Um, I'm sure that the rest of the game is perfectly fine. I haven't played it yet. And then in Downpour, they tried to do more of an open world kind of thing where you had like side missions. I'm incredibly fascinated to play this, but because it wasn't about the usual things and because it had this sort of a rain motif and because it was a little bit more I mean, I get the impression that it was a little bit less actiony and more contemplative. I am absolutely dying to play that game, but a lot of people thought it was just a bit meh, really. Uh, and then, of course, after this, and then they had a few spin-offs on handheld consoles. And now, of course, in the new Bulb generation, they got Guillermo del Toro on board with Hideo Kojima to make the next entry, uh, which they released a playable trailer for. And then Hideo Kojima quit. Guillermo del Toro had other things to do. And so Silent Hill is currently effectively dead. Well done, Konami. I think there's things going down at Konami at the moment, I'll be honest with you. Because I, I, they, what is, yes. what is they, Metal Gear Solid guy got fired or marginalised. Hideo Kojima. Yeah. So they had the guy who was go, who made Metal Gear Solid, who's now left. He was going to make the next Silent Hill game with Guillermo del Toro. I know. I, that would have been a wet dream. I, I would have, I would have walked to, I might have bought a third generation, fourth generation console or something. Who knows? Stranger things could have happened. Uh, and it's it's terribly sad, but I get the feeling is that the video game branch of the company isn't making a lot of money, especially with Hideo uh, hemorrhaging money just making uh, a next, the next uh, Metal Gear Solid game. Uh, and so instead, they're, they're gearing their company more towards mobile games and gambling, which is a, a, a massive source of revenue for them. So it's a case of money winning over art, I'm afraid. All the same, if I spent, oh, yeah. if I spent. Uh, 20 million dollars just making a game engine for for my product i too would be going eh, why are we employing you again i think it, it, we've actually uh stumbled uh through the discussion of this into a conversation about the fact that there are two major properties at this time of metal gear solid and silent hill as a video game manufacturer those are the ones that they have made money on and that continue to generate some revenue when they appear and are world beaters and all of this kind of thing. But the problem is, like you say, they 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 are what they are because the creators of them have a particular strangeness to them. And that also means that as the most, the best, you know, if they were, uh, you know, Konami were making like a baseball game and an American football game and a racing game, no problems. Brilliant. Fantastic. But what they're making is like the uh, Hallmark tactical espionage action with long talky cutscenes thing. And the one where a passive aggressive town full of mist and wibblies tries to kill you. And the problem is these are both niche markets. However big they are with the fans, they are not going to pay mass- the massive budgets that are being demanded for them. And therefore, if from a business perspective, we can see exactly what's going on. And it has to be said that as much as I love Silent Hill I can see the problems with it there are loads of them uh, Silent Hill is not it's, it, it, you say it's hard to put in a film it's hard to put in a game, it's hard to put in a comic book Silent Hill is an immensely difficult concept particularly bearing in mind the fact that the minute, you know, in the first one they kind of went a bit all Dennis Wheatley with their devil worship because they didn't want to go the full Lovecraft and because there's something mundane about cultists summoning a devil with horns, even if it has got extra eyes. And so at that point, 
it all kind of starts to fall apart. And Metal Gear Solid, don't even go into it. The jokes about, well, I just went away to, you know, I went and had a three-course meal and then I came back and then I resumed the game. I didn't press pause. I just let the uh, cutscene play out. You know, yeah, these are problematic properties. And unless they're in the hands of people who care about nourish those properties, yeah, I can see why they're gone. But it does make it not sad. Yeah, that we've lost. Well, we're still going to get Metal Gear Solid Five at some point because it's just too far gone to stop now. But yeah, I think I worry. Will this will this be the end of this prestige lines of, of video game series I played when I had a console uh, and have uh, kind of lost contact with? Well, I mean, I've got. I mean, you know, I can't uh, say much because I've picked everything up secondhand and never even put the discs of the PS3 versions. The only PS3 Silent Hill disc I've put in was the famously derided HD Silent Hill collection, where I, I think I went with the original voices because I'd heard that they'd done such a terrible mashup of uh the the redone and also they've taken away certain things which were there although they were there to mask technical limitations in the hardware at the time they also provided atmosphere and because they weren't going to do any more development work on properly hd sets just stop in the distance you could hear a line whereas they were covered with mist before and the someone some idiot went take the mist away you don't need it You've got so much more processing power. Yes, but the draw distance doesn't. No, but it doesn't matter. Just do it. So, yeah, with it, with all its flaws, the only Silent Hill game I've played on the PS3 is Silent Hill 2. Uh, I guess the fans are living in the past as much as anyone else on this one, because I am one, and that's my confession of Silent Hill shame. So there we go. Indeed. But uh, in the end, what we have discovered, therefore, is that sometimes you can love something even though it's deeply flawed. So that's good news. Um, so if people want to tell uh, us what they love that's deeply flawed, where, Ian, might they go to tell us about that kind of confession? Well, one place you can go to prevent us for talking about video games during our ABC of Cinema would be our Facebook page, which you can find on Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids. And that's 80s as in numbers, so 80s. Please go there and like our page. It is our community hub. We put up links to a podcast there, as well as links we find interesting. But podcasts are what it's all about. So point your browser towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters. So E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S kids dot com. Please go there and like our, please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice or download to your PC for dark reasons of your own. Uh, but this is only where our most recent podcasts can be found. For the legacy of our podcasts, you must go to the80skids.blogspot.com where you'll find a full archive of all our shows ever there waiting for you to enjoy at your leisure. Uh, currently standing at how many episodes isn't there? 199? I think we're up to like 98 or something and then we're going to transfer in the next tranche when I make some room on, on Podomatic. So there you go, 90, there be the 90 episodes. Surely that should satisfy you. But if this isn't enough for you, you can track down individual ages kids in such places as... Uh, well, com is where you can find my other stuff. And although it's been quiet for a bit, and I've mostly just been pointing people towards the podcast for various podcasty reasons, which will become apparent to regular listeners, in a minute there's going to be all sorts of other stuff on there, which is also curiously to do with the podcast and the status thereof. If you want to have a look at some of Justin's artwork, uh, then you can do so at justinwyatt.deviantart.com. 
com. But and that's kind of all the news that's fit to print. So uh, we'll be back uh, soon with uh, more film-related uh, gubbins, and of course we have two more uh, alphabet shows to go. And uh, one thing I've noticed about these shows is that they throw up curiosities and things that we otherwise wouldn't have talked about, which has made me immensely glad to have done them and i hope that uh, people at home have had as good a, a, an experience of listening to them uh, wouldn't you agree in i don't know yes uh, I, well i'm enjoying my film collection involving mysterious objects buried in the london underground dangerous pigs and cute robots so really i think i got covered all the grounds there Yes, you have indeed. And not only that, but you've managed to put out things that I haven't seen, which uh, has been a source of great joy. So uh, and now I've got to go away, obviously, and watch every film that was ever made, ever, in time for the next uh, Alphabet Show, so that uh, this embarrassing situation doesn't come up again. Uh, so what are you going to do with the rest of your day, Ian? I don't know. Probably go see to the cat. He's been out and wants some attention. Yeah, so there we go. And that's that's why I've seen all the films ever, and Ian has a happy cat. Uh, so on that message, we'll send you away. Bye, everyone. Farewell. Farewell.